Manasso. So, recalling Padmasambhava's pointing out instructions that were read earlier, they seem actually very simple. They are, in fact, very simple. And you remember there were two phases to it. One was just coming back to the refrain, observe your mind, observe your mind. And it is possible. If one is very gifted, if there are very few obscurations, that one may simply peer right into the very nature of awareness, peer right into the very nature of one's experience of being the agent or the observer and cut right through. Cut right through your mind, cut right through the substrate consciousness, cut right on through to what is called the original purity of pristine awareness. It's possible. Without need for analysis, there are such individuals. But the second phase, he said, well, if, if, that, if that wasn't sufficient, and then he goes in phase two, and he poses a question, or a hypothesis, or an insight that has been gleaned by many contemplatives in the past, but we haven't, we haven't gained that insight yet. And so he poses it, and said, is it that way or not? And then, observe your mind. Well, as soon as it's there, as soon as there's a question, and then you have to check whether or not it's true, then we're definitely into the, into the, into the Pashina territory. So again, the parallel with astronomy is very, very strong. And that is, Galileo may be pointing his, which of course he did, point his telescope at Jupiter and those little white dots around it, which he initially thought were fixed stars behind. And he might just bring in somebody else and said, look what I see. Look, look, look at Jupiter and those little dots and observe. And say, yep, you're right. There's Jupiter and there's little dots. You're right. No question, but you know, you, you checked. So basically, Shamata and Jupiter, and the little dots, whatever they may be, clustering around, or seemingly clustered around. Maybe they're not clustered around at all. Maybe they just happen to be in the vicinity, uh, but you know, far, far behind uh, in deep space. But of course, he wasn't just a stargazer. He was the first great astronomer who made very sophisticated observations with his telescope of celestial events. And he did it with a question, and that was, you know the question, those little dots, are they, in fact, background stars, in which case you would, oh, from night to night, you would expect C to see Jupiter, which moves across the background stars, to be moving away from them, and they're going to stay right where they were within that large you know, framework of, this, of these stars and what we now know to be galaxies. A gal- Jupiter would just move on and leave them behind. Is it so, or is it not? Examine Jupiter, you know. And I was at a planetarium just a few months ago, and it said it, and I learned there something fresh. It took him only a week. He had the question, he made repeated observations. In one week, he could see, hey, they're moving along with Jupiter. They're not background stars. Process of elimination, they have to be moons. And that was a big discovery, the likes of which had never been made ever since Aristotle. Because Aristotle and others said, all celestial events go in perfect circles around the planet, around us, you know. So there were those questions, those questions. Now, as we just observe the mind, resting in awareness of awareness, observing maybe the observing the observer, observing the agent, just what comes up, it's as we get familiar with it, we learn how to do it, and we feel, okay, I, I'm doing it, I, I got the hang of it now. And you do it repeatedly. Again, it's possible that, that like that glowing ember, placed on upon, a, let's say, a cone of snow, 
uh, with the pointy top on the, on the top, the pointy part on the top, you might, in fact, it's possible, melt all the way down, right through your mind, through the substrate consciousness, right down to the ground pristine awareness. It's possible. You know. Gyanlam Rimba, when he, when he taught me this practice, oh, 19, well, 28 years ago, 1988, uh, he said, you know, when you first start with the awareness of awareness, it's not all that clear, the nature of awareness, its phenomenal characteristics, let alone its actual nature of existence, not so clear. But if you just persist, you just hang in there and put in the 10 hours and 100 hours and maybe thousands of hours, it just gets clearer and clearer and clearer. Or does it? Or does it? Because we all know Vipassana meditators. I'm going to take this as one of several examples. There are people who have been practicing Vipassana for years and years and years, decades and decades, without much shamatha basis, which is is the normal, the standard. And what happens in the case of some, I have no idea what the percentage is, not my business, but I know what happens to some, that there they are practicing Vipassana, and they just, it's kind of like they hit a ceiling, just hit a ceiling. And it's just not going anywhere. You know, they're just kind of there, plateaued out. I'm sure that happens in Zen also. Just, just sitting, just sitting, just sitting, sitting. After a while, yeah, I've been sitting a lot, and it's kind of more of the same. And it can plateau out. It doesn't necessarily go deeper and deeper and deeper. The same is true for the shamatha practice of awareness, awareness. Same is true in other practices as well. That we can hit a plateau where there just doesn't seem to be any deepening, any opening, any purification, any growing of insight. And so what we've encountered there is a layer of obscuration that we're not penetrating. You know? So I mentioned multiple layers. I mentioned the cognitive, did that. I mentioned the attentional, did that. I mentioned acquired or speculative ignorance that can be a big obstacle, obscuration, did that. This morning we looked into the conate, the conate obscuration of reifying oneself, one's own mind, reifying objects, reifying the bifurcation or the duality of subject and object, that's a big obscuration, right? And there are more obscurations after that, which we won't go into right now, but we're going to linger there because we're going to return to pointing out instruction from Padmasabhava in the session just coming up. But what he did on the last one, it's definitely worth doing more than once. It's in natural liberation. Now you have it on the website for this, uh, for these podcasts, for these this retreat. It's called Engaging the Search for the Mind. It's The more you go into it, I think, the more brilliant you will find it to be. It's simple, there's no question, but simple. E equals mc squared is simple. The three, the three laws of Newton are simple. They're simple. They're really, but that doesn't, mean they're, they're not, that doesn't mean they're trivial. I mean, they're quite profound, simple, and so profound. This, Engaging in the Search for the Mind, and with questions, you recall them. I'm not going to review it now. It's there. You can always go back to it. And always do the meditation over, over again, listening to the guided meditation on the podcast. But that simple question when you're observing the mind, are there two? You are observing the mind. That's true. That's not impossible. But then what is it that's observing the mind? And are these two? Or is one thing observing itself? So is the mind really one? in which case somehow that one is observing itself, or is it, is it in fact really two? There's the mind that's still and silent, observing, the mind that's in motion and so forth. Are there two? Is the mind really one, or is it really two? And does it 
And here we know this is not simply a phenomenological survey. It's not simply, for example, looking at, at Amy's face and say, do I see Amy? Yes, I do. How? I just I see her, I recognize her face. Is Amy's face Amy? No. But it's sufficient. So we did that, you know. And that's sufficient. I don't need to see anything more. I don't need to see her shoulder or kneecap or anything else. There's a, that, that face is quite distinctive. And that's, but her face is not Amy. Nevertheless, that's sufficient to, to phenomenologically say, have you seen Amy? Is she here? The answer, yeah, I'm sure she's right there. End of discussion. I know it with certainty, right? We're going beyond that. When we're settling the mind in this natural state, that's sufficient. Any, if any distinctive characteristic a thought, an emotion, the space of the mind, and so forth. Observe any of them, that counts. That's good enough to say, are you observing the mind? Are you taking the mind onto the path? The answer is yes, you're doing it. Good. But we're going beyond that now. And we know where we're going, where, where the real the thrust of this inquiry is in engaging for the search for the mind. You don't have to search for thoughts. They bombard you. You don't have to search for emotions or desires or memories. They're all in your face. You know, No search. They're going to find you if you can't find them. Right? But that which is observing, that which is observing all these mental events, that which is observing all these appearances to the mind, that which is observing all the objects of the mind, well, that's got to be in the mind. Now, what's that? What's that? What's that mind? That is both, it has a dual role, it's very interesting. And it gets more interesting the deeper you go. The mind is an observer, for sure. But more than that, the mind also is an agent that does things. Right? We know that. The mind is creative, sometimes obnoxiously so, as it spews out this ever-churning, churning, churning flow of obsessive compulsive ideation. Well, it, it's creative, it's like, you know, like a crazy person in an insane asylum just going painting, painting, painting. You know, just anything that comes to mind, just, you know, smearing, spraying, splattering paint all over one campus, canvas after another. Who knows, you might find an art dealer that will find a market. You, know, you never can tell. Uh, but anybody else looking at it say, this is just, it's just, it's just, it's just obsessive, compulsive painting. <laughs> right? Into the trash heap, right? But at the same time, the creativity of a Michelangelo, a da Vinci, of an Einstein, of a Picasso, of a Mozart, of a Bach, Frank Lloyd, Frank Lloyd Wright, yeah? and so forth and so on. I mean, awesome, absolutely awesome. You know? And the great scientists of history and so on. The great poets, the great artists, the great novelists, playwrights and so forth. Just stunning. When one really lingers there, and then goes back to Darwinian evolution, you'd have to be out of your mind to think that we biologically adapted to write Shakespeare's plays. That this enabled him to have more kids. <laughs> that he survived and prop- prop- propagated better because he, he wrote good plays and the chicks liked it. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Einstein, how many people really understood his general relativity when it came out? Did it really help him have more babies and survive? It's, it's just absurd. We've mesmerized with that brilliant theory that explains so well our animal nature and has nothing to say about our eudaimonia, our search for truth, our search for transcendence, our truth, our search for knowing reality as it is, has nothing to say. 
because it's irrelevant to survival and procreation. So there we are. Now let's just let's weave this together. It's so much fun. What are the defining characteristics of consciousness? It's luminous. You know what that means. It's cognizant. The cognizant is the observer, the one who knows, the one who's watching, right? Quiet, knowing. That's the observer. That's what we probed into this morning, our experience of being the one who knows, the knower. How do you appear to yourself as the knower? But there's more going on with consciousness than simply knowing or observing or witnessing. The luminous aspect. Well, the, luminous, the luminosity is not confined to making manifest thoughts, memories, visual impressions, sounds. That luminosity is the source of all the creativity of the mind. Not just knowing. Knowing, we know what's already there. right? We're observing, witnessing. That's not creative, it's passive. It's yin. But the luminosity, that's doing something. It's illuminating the visual, the auditory, the mental. It's illu- constructing and illuminating dreams. And some of the dreams are quite ingenious. I mean, the, the whole vision of the double helix. Francis Crick, wasn't it? came up in a dream. And how many other brilliant ideas over history and art, literature, science, and so forth have come up with in dreams, you know. And that's source, the source of inspiration. Or daydreaming, or musing, you know. And then, whoa, out comes something. And it turns out like a, like a gold nugget in a stream, which is mostly dirt and gravel. And there's a nugget of pure gold, you know. That's an expression of the luminosity. The stage of generation practice. Now, you're not observing anything there. That is, you observe what you've created, but if you don't create anything, there's nothing to observe except for emptiness. Right? And so there, that magisterial, creative display of the mind with pure vision, with the mandala, the deities, and so forth and so on, all of that is a display of the sheer luminosity of, of awareness. Right? And so, the mind is that which knows what is already there and creates what isn't already there. The appearances weren't already there. The photons, yeah. Atoms, molecules, sure. Appearances, no way. The mind creates those from scratch. So we engage in the search for the mind. That observer, the one who, the one who is observing, but also the one who is thinking, the one who is doing the meditation, the one, the one who is both witnessing but also doing meditating, thinking. Does it exist? Yeah? Does it exist? If it exists, you should be able to strip away all of the context, everything around it, and then just identify it. If it exists, it should be knowable. If you can know know it, you should be able to identify it. If you can identify it, you should be able to describe it. So, go for it. Describe the observer. Describe that which creates thoughts and images and everything else the mind comes up with. Describe that which does it. Good luck. <laughs> and then if you can't, if you, if you say, but I looked and I couldn't find. I couldn't find. Yeah, what is it that couldn't find? I don't know. <laughs> Not good enough answer. 
do you not exist? Or do you exist? You, the mind, the agent, the observer. And so, in this very uncomfortable, vipassana was never designed to make us uncomfortable. Modern vipassana, can you imagine how many vipassana centers there would be in the world and how many people would come? <laughs> if, they t- if they taught in the vipassana centers what I taught yesterday, two days ago? Oh, yeah, oh, at least, oh, dozens. <laughs> you know, in at least two or three centers worldwide. Uh, people may be a bit masochistic, just like to beat themselves up. <laughs> you know? No way. No, they wonder, these wonderful Vipassana teachers, many of them are very fine people, they've made it accessible, made it practical, make it, make it helpful for people who are very busy lives, who are spiritual and not spiritual, Buddhist and not Buddhist, materialistic and theistic and so forth. Something that's helpful, something that relieves stress, gives greater peace of mind, greater clarity has other health benefits, psychological benefits. They've done a great service. The relationship between that Vipassana and the Vipassana as taught in, by the Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta, very, very distant, let alone Majamaka Vipassana, extremely distant, let alone Mahamudra, Dzogchen Vipassana, extremely distant. So, there it is. But as we investigate the mind, we search for the mind. We search for it, seek to observe it, seek to identify it. What's being challenged here is our fundamental way of apprehending apprehending everything. And that is, first of all, whenever I apprehend anything, first of all, I'm reifying myself. Okay, I'm over here. I got my act together. Now, what does you want me to look at? And then I look at whatever I'm going to look at, and I reify that. Right. And then, of course, having reified the object, and having already prior to that reified the subject, of course I reify the separation, the distinction, the duality between subject and object. And that is a heavy cloud layer. As you try to rest in awareness of awareness, if that cloud layer has not been penetrated, you can sit there practicing awareness of awareness of Vipassana or Zen or Dzogchen or Mahamudra till the cows come home, as they say. And you're going to be basically, you could be treading water. You're really good. Because you're just sitting under a cloud bank of dualistic grasping, and you're just sitting there waiting for it to go away. And maybe it won't. Maybe that's gosh. Maybe that's why Vipassana is needed by most people. Because it just you just don't cut through. It's kind of leaden, a leaden sky. And you're under it, and you're not getting through it. And you call that whatever you like, but what you are is sitting under a leaden sky of obscuration. So this is why we exert ourselves to really seek to penetrate through that in exactly the kind of practice that he taught, engaging for the search of the mind. To break up that reified way of grasping onto the mind and its objects, this internal duality of subject and object, even within the context of mind. Break that up, soften that up, shatter that, like a Coke bottle. You just keep on dropping it, dropping it, and dropping it, until finally it shatters. And you've shattered the reification of your own mind. And so, what do you come up with if you did that practice more than once? And you're searching for the mind, and you're searching for the mind that is really there, that you're searching for the mind that's really doing the searching. You're searching for the mind that is being sought. And you're searching to see whether it's truly one or it's truly 
more than one, like two, searching whether it really exists or whether it really doesn't exist. And you keep on coming up with this not finding, not finding that it's really one. It does not commute. The whole system goes into meltdown. And then, is it really two? Do I really have two minds? Maybe one of them Buddha mind, the other one's my samsaric mind. That goes into meltdown. Does not find. Do not find the mind as being truly one or as truly more than one. Do not find. And you may even go beyond that to see that it's not to be found, your mind, as something that is truly one or truly multiple. And you move on, well, within our familiar categories, to be or not to be, to exist or not to exist, that mind that is observing, does it really exist? And if you scrutinize that, examine that, probe into that, and this is, bear in mind, this is radically empirical. You can go into very, very detailed, incredibly sophisticated conceptual analyses, following Nagarjuna, Chantikirti, and so forth and so on. That's not really so much this approach. This one is just radically empirical. And does this mind, the mind that is observing, the mind that's pursuing this meditation, does it really exist? And then find you can't find it as something that really exists. But then immediately you draw that conclusion but if it doesn't exist, if the mind doesn't really exist, then what is it that just came to that conclusion? And how could something that doesn't exist, that really doesn't exist, come to any conclusion at all? It's absurd. But then it must exist, but if it exists, it must be identifiable. And then you don't find and you don't find. And through that process of not just not finding, but finding that it's not to be found, the sheer absence of the mind is something that's really one or many, that is really existent or really non-existent. In that not finding, and that finding that it is not, you've really broken the Coke bottle. You've really shattered that layer of obscuration. You've broken it up. It's, it's crumbling. It's disintegrating. And in the absence of finding your mind, you may look and see what's left. In the discovery that there's no mind to be found in such a way, beyond the merely phenomenological, beyond the merely phenomenological, yeah, see, she, Amy's right there. Beyond that, okay, we, we nailed that one. That's easy. But then I look for Amy, okay, but okay, well, yeah, sure, that's how we talk. But Amy has a face, she's not a face. And she has a body, but she's not a body. She has a mind, she's not a mind. She has a body and a mind, but she's not both. Is Amy to be found there in her body? No, I just did a scan. I didn't find her. In fact, I'm sure she's not there. You know, I'm sure she's not. Not in the hair, not in the brain cells, right down to the toenails. I'm sure. She's not there. There's no Amy in there. Somebody would have found her by now. At least her husband would have found her. And then all that wide array of mental events, processes, thoughts, memories, sense of personal identity, states of consciousness, is it Amy, a person to be found in that whole array of mental events and processes? The answer is no. no. Nowhere to be found in the mind, nowhere to be found in the body, nowhere to be found in the interrelationship between the two. It's kind of like total absence of Amy all the way through, and they say, okay, she's not there, she must be someplace else. And then I look over to Michelle. Michelle, is, is she possessed you? Is, is Amy to be found in Michelle? And Michelle says, I don't think so, you know. 
the notion of Amy being outside her skin in some other kind of ethereal Amy realm, aimlessly wandering around looking for Amy. <laughs> Not likely. Nobody's ever seen it. And so one can easily conclude then, well, then Amy isn't there. But if the person who just engaged in that analysis was Amy, because, of course, that's where we really start, then Amy just came to the conclusion she doesn't exist. But that's not possible. Because something that doesn't exist can't draw any conclusions at all, either false or true. So you come up with a sheer absence of an Amy that's really there. And a sheer absence of an Amy that's not really there. And that whole concept of Amy breaks apart. It, it's like... It's like a rainbow that's kind of fading away, or a mirage, it's just disappearing, fading out, fading out. And in the absence of that, when the mind with which you've been doing the investigation, the mind with which you've been engaging in the search for the mind, when that itself, it's like, like a submarine that sends a torpedo out, but unfortunately they're poorly programmed, and the torpedo just turns around and does a U-turn. Whoops. You send out the torpedo of Vipassana and it just circles around and <laughs> blows your mind. And what's, what lingers after your mind is blown? What, what's left? And you examine that. And now maybe if you just rest in awareness of awareness, maybe you'll see something beyond the obscuration of dualistic grasping. And that's what the search for the mind is for. Now, that is a lot... I know it's difficult. I've done it myself. I tried it once in a while. I know it's difficult. But Kamachana said in that marvelous chapter of his on shamatha, the stronger your shamatha, the stronger your vipassana. If you have really weak shamatha, your mind is basically subject to a lot of excitation and, and dullness, authentic vipassana is going to be just difficult. And it's going to stay difficult. It will always be difficult. Because the mind with which you're trying to do it is so cruddy, so flaky, so dysfunctional. And something about which we can have a lot of confidence is the more you tune, you hone, you balance, you refine, you purify that mind through shamatha, then that Vipassana practice, engaging in the search for the mind, which he teaches immediately after telling his audience, his students, now, here we come to awareness of awareness. Continue doing this practice until your mind is settled in this natural state. Don't go to the next chapter until you're finished. You know? If you've actually done that, then you may cut through the next part like a, like a hot knife through butter. One of my favorite metaphors. It's just... Your mind is so suitable, so capable. And the mind you're attending to is so simple because you've cut through all the layers, all the con- convolutions, all the configurations of your mind, 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 this person, mind, that person, mind, all that fluff, all the, all the noise, you know, that makes my mind different from your mind, all that stuff, which is kind of like neither here nor there when it comes to really doing the ontological probe. Whether it's a man's mind or woman's mind, who cares? Who cares? whether you're highly intelligent or not so intelligent, whether you speak this language, that language, you study this philosophy, that, who cares? That's all secondary. It's kind of like neither here nor there. If you strip it right down to its nucleus, as in settling the mind its natural state, and then you engage in the search for the mind, which is still there. It's called subtle mind. 
right? And it's still cognizant and it's still luminous, but it's stripped down to its nucleus, to the essential nature of the mind, right? Stripped down to that stem mind, that stem consciousness. You could make quite quick work of the passion. The mind you're examining is naked. The mind with which you're examining it is just finely tuned, like a scalpel, ready to just cut right to the core. You could finish quite quickly. Without shamatha, you could just be frustrated for decades. So we have the engaging in the search for the mind, and now we move on to the next meditation, as if we finished that one. Because of course, because of course you finished with shamatha several days ago. So, and, and now you finish with the engaging mind. And so, and this is quite suitable. This is exactly what Gautam Bhutta taught us when he was teaching this text. Don't get stuck. Don't you know? Find that middle way of recognizing there is a path here. And yes, your vipassana will go much better if you fully achieve shamatha. And right on through. Yes, it will go much better if you if you really accomplish the earlier stages. Yes, that's true. Yes, there is a path. Yes, there is a sequence of practices. And no, don't get stuck. Get rigid and say, I'm not moving until. You know, I've achieved, fully achieved shamatha. As one of my teachers said, if you take that approach, you could be stuck just on taking refuge forever. Because, well, I've not really fathomed the full meaning of taking refuge, so I won't even go beyond it. Maybe that'll work out well. But then maybe it'll just kind of keep you stuck in kindergarten forever. So there's that balance. Recognize the sequence, but also go ahead and seed your mind with forays into these more advanced practices, and then come back to your main course, the practices that are really serving you well, where you live right now, but continue seeding with these more advanced practices. And that really, that's what I've been told by multiple teachers, Geshe Rapton, Gyatrodambuchi, and so on. Uh, that's really the way that the great adepts of the past have done. So now, we can imagine, for fun, that we've engaged in the search for the mind, and we're not only not found, because not finding is, is easy. You know, it's just like, I looked, I didn't find it. <laughs> Next. Anything else you want me to not find? <laughs> so I can probably do it quite quickly. Um, pretty much anything. Are there tigers in Tuscany? I don't know. I looked, I haven't seen any. <laughs> Are there any zoos in Tuscany? I don't know. I haven't checked. But, but I, I looked, no, I didn't see any zoos in Tuscany. Well, that was easy. But totally uninformative. And so, same thing here. But let's imagine, and maybe you've had some taste in engaging in the search for the mind, that that real mind is not really there at all. Either there's one or many as existent or non-existent. It starts to break up, break up. And then the question is, what's still there? What's untouched by your analysis? Because all we are really probing, seeking to pierce, was the mind as it is apprehended by a dualistic, delusional mind. If that's broken up, then of course you don't go unconscious. Something lingers. What's that? And the next phase is identifying awareness. Find a comfortable position. You'll want it.
extremely briefly now, this is again excerpted from the book Natural Liberation, Padmasambhava's teachings on the six bardos. And this is the section called Identifying Awareness. And the word awareness, of course, is rikpa. And identifying is pointing out. So these are Padmasambhava's pointing out instructions for identifying rikpa. Okay, that should be good. Awesome. Aspiration to see that which is already evident, hidden in plain sight, which is who we are, the essential nature of our own minds. With the aspiration to realize our own minds as Dharmakaya, and thereby achieve full awakening for the sake of all beings with such a motivation, Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state, and for a short time calm the mind with mindfulness of breathing. So Padmasambhava begins by giving instructions to the instructor. He writes, Have all your pupils sit in front of you in the posture bearing the seven attributes of Varochana. And then here are the instructions to your students. Now place your awareness right in the space in front of you, steadily, without modification, fixedly, without wavering, and clearly, without a meditative object. Let's do that now.
And he comments by, while so doing, given the differences in intellect, in sum, a non-conceptual, unmediated, conceptually unstructured reality will arise in their mind streams. So he's going to give variations here, see whether any of these shoes fit or correspond to your own experience. So for some, once again, there arises a non-conceptual, unmediated, conceptually unstructured reality that arises in the mind stream. In some, there will be a steady, natural luster of emptiness that is not an emptiness that is nothing. And there will arise a realization that this is awareness itself. It is the nature of the mind. some there will arise a sense of steady clarity or luminosity and in others a sense of straightforward emptiness. and see which, if any of these, descriptions correspond to your experience. In some appearances and the mind will merge. Appearances will not be left outside, and awareness will not be left inside. And there will arise a sense that they've become inseparably equalized. It is impossible that some such kind of experience will fail to occur.
And now for his direct pointing out instructions. Consciousness is just this clear, steady consciousness that is ordinarily, naturally present right now. It is not grounded in the nature of any shape or color, so it is free of the extreme of substantialism, of really being there as some kind of a thing. While it is non-existent, that is to say not existent as some real entity, it is a steady, clear, natural luminosity (coughs) that is not created by anyone. So it is free of the extreme of nihilism. It's not utterly non-existent. It, that is, awareness, did not originate from a certain time, nor did it arise from certain causes and conditions, so it is free of the extreme of birth. mind does not die or cease at a certain time, so it is free of the extreme of cessation.
while it is not existent, in the sense of fitting into the category, the conceptual category of existence, while it is not existent, its unimpeded creative power appears in all manner of ways, so it is free of the extreme of singularity, of being one thing, one entity. Though it appears in various ways, it is liberated without having any inherent nature. So it is free of the extreme of multiplicity, of being more than one. Thus it is called the view that is free of extremes. It is a mode of awareness that transcends all of the conceptual elaborations of existence and non-existence, of birth and cessation, of one and many, of coming and going, nowhere to be found (coughs) within any of these conceptual constructs. What is left when we free the awareness, when we transcend all of the conceptual elaborations of the dualistic mind? What remains? It is said to be free of bias and partiality. This alone is called the mind of the Buddha. The mind of a sentient being, that which becomes a Buddha, that which wanders in samsara, and that which experiences joy and sorrow, 
are all this alone. And that is your mind, your samsaric mind, does not exist apart from Rikpa, the mind of the Buddha. If this did not exist, if this Buddha mind did not exist, there would be no one to experience samsara or nirvana, or any joy and sorrow, which would imply a comatose extreme of nihilism. This alone has been created by no one, but is self-arisen, primordial, and spontaneous. So it is called primordial consciousness. Such awareness as this does not originate from the profound instructions of a spiritual mentor, nor does it originate from your sharp intelligence. Primordially and originally, the natural character of the mind itself, it just exists just like that. But previously it has been obscured by conate ignorance. So you do not recognize it or ascertain it. You are not satisfied and you do not believe. Now grant it to the master of wealth. Know your own nature. Know your own flaws. That is called identifying the mind. These instructions were fingers pointing to the moon of our own awareness. Look at what these instructions were pointing to and rest there so that your awareness may know its own nature, see its own face.
and know itself to be the Buddha mind. So we've come to kind of a break or discontinuity, at least from my perspective, uh, in Benjaminabhuji's text, the Mahamudra. You'll recall that he laid out the general framework in the introduction, 
preliminaries, and then went to, I think, a very, very clear presentation of shamatha, highlighting two methods, particularly drawing very heavily on the Mahamudra tradition. So that, that, those particular methods and explication of them, uh, I'm not sure you'll find that anywhere in Galupa literature prior to him. So he's clearly drawing on the Kagyu, the Mahamudra literature on shamatha that is designed precisely to prepare you for venturing into the Mahamudra Vipassana on the nature of the mind designed to prepare you for realizing Rigpa, Mahamudra. And that was finished. And then he returns to the Mahamudra in the Vipassana section. And then again he's citing one classic source after another in the Kagyu tradition, the Mahamudra tradition. Very, very classic, brief citations from Saraha and so forth, uh, which are very representative. He's a great scholar, it goes without saying. Very representative of the kind of approach, uh, the examining origin, location, and destination, and so forth, uh, that is very characteristic of Mahamudra Vipassana practice, prior to identifying Rikpa itself, right? prior to that. <clears throat> didn't comment a whole lot on it, didn't really lay out, I didn't, I didn't see much in the way of integration of Galukpa approaches to Vipassana, but rather simply set forth, here is, here is a very good sampling, uh, authentic sampling of Vipassana avenues within the Mahamudra tradition. He did that. He did it very clearly, authoritatively. And now he's finished with that. And now he's going to start something, another section of his presentation. And for those of you who have studied Galupa, and specifically studied Vipassana, studied Madhyamaka, in the Galupa tradition, I can assure you it's smooth sailing from here on. That it will be very familiar. Very, very familiar. I mean, you, you'll, you'll find little, if anything, in the following presentation that you won't find in Tsongkhapa's own presentations of Vipassana, in his medium lamrim, his great lamrim, and so on, his great commentaries to... Um, the Majamaka classics from Chantikirti, and so on, and Nagarjuna. So it's like he laid these side by side, but they are very definitely different. They're not just a rephrasing of the same method. They're actually different methods. And you can review what we've already covered in those last several pages. The Vipassana, the focusing on the nature of mind, the ontological probe in nature of mind in this Mahamudra tradition. And you'll not find any reference to identify the object of negation, subject that to ontological analysis to see whether that mind does, in fact, exist or not. That inherently exists in mind. It's not there. I'm, I've never seen it anywhere. I'm, I'm not very learned, really. It's quite narrow. But Gyatranamuch has guided me to some spectacular and very representative meditation guides in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen tradition. So the samples he's given me, I'm, I'm very confident, are representative of the ocean. He gave me a cup. That cup really is very indicative of what you find in the rest of the ocean. And uh, there's that, that approach. And then there's an approach that Gishingam Taigi introduced us to way back in 1972. Classic, classic Vipassana, you know, f- based on Shantideva and Shantikirti, Nakajuna, Arideva, and so on. Really classic Madhyamaka. But they're different. They're different. And we, it's, it's good to bear in mind that the whole point of the, the Pashana, 
within the Mahamudra Dzogchen traditions is not just to realize the emptiness of the mind, but to realize rigpa, primordial consciousness, pristine awareness, to cut through to the very subtle mind or the primordial mind of clear light, which in the Vajrayana context is generally found by way of stage of completion practice. And that's true in the Kagyu tradition as much as the Galupa, as much as the Nyingmapa or the Sakyapa. It's in stage of completion with the various practices of visualization, possible breathing, postures, and so forth, all designed rather strenuously, frankly, to draw those energies into this central channel, the pranas that are generally flowing through the the left and right channels, draw them into the central channel, into the heart, and into the indestructible bindu at the heart, and thereby manifest, make evident, the primordial mind of clear light, and that is rikpa. And it's with that mind that you realize emptiness, and this is really bona fide, deep, deep-seated Vajrayana practice. Right? Now that's what Mahamudra and Zokyan are for. In the Kagyut tradition, the Mahamudra, as he clearly laid out, and is clearly laid out elsewhere, I think it's widely assumed, and with very good reason, if you're a Kagyupa, and you're following this Mahamudra teaching, that you are complementing your Mahamudra practice, the straight Mahamudra practice, the shamatha, the vipassana, the pointing out, you're complementing that very, very likely, almost certainly, with some state regeneration practice, very often it's Chakrasambhada or Vajrayogini, and definitely, if you're really serious, if you're professional, you're definitely going to be spending a lot of time practicing the six yogas of Naropa or the six yogas of Niguna, Naropa's consort, complementary. But you'll be doing that, and of course within those six yogas, the kind of the, the mountain peak that rises and casts light on the other is Dumo, or Chandali in Sanskrit, Dumo. And it's not just, of course, about generating internal heat. If, you really, if what you really want is internal heat, there's a much faster way, it's called a hot water bottle. <laughs> Put, place it right in your tummy, you're going to feel real warm. It's, it's nice, it's really cozy. Oh. If that's what it's for, they could have found an easier way to get warm than practicing tummo. Just look at the movie Yogis of Tibet and see how easy that is, all those exercises being done. Hot water bottle's a lot easier. But the outer display, the manifestation of this heat, is just the, just the outer veneer. Just the outer veneer. You know, they had easier ways to keep warm during those long winter, winter nights in Tibet than doing this practice. That's the outer veneer, but what's that indicative of? of course, is all of the energies of the coarse mind and the subtle mind dissolving into the very subtle energy, coarse mind, subtle mind dissolving into the very subtle mind, manifesting the primordial mind of of clear light and realizing emptiness from that perspective. And so that's your kind of your muscle, is the six yogas of Naropa, and within that, especially the Dumo practice, of which Milarepa, Marpa, that whole lineage, they are masters and they are still mastering it. They're still very great Dumo adepts living today. And then the Mahamudra is the grace note. You know, it's just that flourish to realize what you've been set up to realize with the six yogas, the six dharmas of, of Naropa. So it's assumed you're going to be complementing that. And that's often done in the Dzogchen tradition as well. They'll do Salung retreats very, very commonly. When I visited Gantantuburumachi's monastery up in Bhutan a couple of years back, right then they had a tent up for about 30 monks who were going through really intensive salung practice. Practices involving the energies, the, the, the nadis, the, the bindus and so forth. Very, very demanding. You want to be young to do that. I doubt that there are any 60-year-olds in there. They're probably in their 20s and 30s, maybe even teenagers. It's very physically demanding. 
and so they were right in the middle. We never saw them. They were cloistered. They were really going full out, doing those kind of practices you can see done that were demonstrated in the movie Yogis of Tibet. Awesome. That's straight Nyingmapa. Uh, he's a, he's a, an accomplished Dzogchen practitioner, teacher, uh, adept, and so forth. <clears throat> so it's very much part of the Nyingma as well. When we come to the next section in Penchenaboshi's text, there's no tumo. As he said, hey, I'm teaching Mahamudra in a Sutrayana context. He's not teaching tumo. He's not teaching stage of completion. He's not teaching any of that. He's going right to classic Vipassana meditation on the nature of emptiness, which you realize with a subtle mind, if you've achieved shamatha, you realize with a subtle mind. But I think you'll see for the rest of the text, which I've now edited all the way through, so I've polished from my perspective, I've polished the entire translation now. So, nice to have that finished. Uh, there's no reference. There's no reference to the, uh, you know, to going beyond the mere realization of emptiness of the mind, to realizing the primordial mind of clear light. There's no reference to it. It's Sutrayana. He already said, Sutrayana, Sutrayana. But what about the interface between these two? And especially if we look at Dzogchen, where Dujum Lingba, or by way of Dujum Lingba, Padmasambhava says, the stage of generation and completion, not absolutely indispensable. To be very helpful, to be sure. Indispensable? No. Shamada? Indispensable. Just like Penchenarmache said. Vipassana? Indispensable. You must realize the emptiness. And then texture? Yeah, of course, of course, that's the essence of it. Turtgel? For most people, turtgel will be necessary. Some, the very gifted, can practice just texture, cutting through to pristine awareness, and that'll be enough to achieve rainbow body. That'll be enough. Most they will want to engage in the direct crossing over, which is a visionary practice. So what's the relationship between these two? This different approach that he's already now summarized, and he's not going to say much more about it, of the kind of Vipassana teachings, the pointing out teachings from the Mahamudra tradition, compared to the straight galupa take on simply realizing the emptiness of the mind, of the self, and of all phenomena, because he's going to cover all of it. It's going to be a very condensed presentation here. What's the, rela- re- uh, the relationship there? Well, I can draw a parallel briefly, and that is in the Vajra essence, which is my mainstay. I keep on referring to it, and I will again. Um, he refers to the preliminaries. He goes to shamatha. He says, Chi- achieve it. Settle the mind its natural state with the substrate consciousness. And then he goes right into Vipassana. A rather len- a lengthy presentation, something like 30 pages or so. And he's analyzing, he's investigating it, and I will say with utter confidence, completely in accordance with Prasangika Majamaka, as is taught widely in Tibet, and is clearly, emphatically taught by Tsongkhaba. Um, I just, to my mind, there's no doubt that the emptiness he's teaching, that he's guiding people to realize, Padmasambhava by way of Dujum Lingba, is exactly in accordance with Prasangika Majamaka, but he doesn't speak about identifying the object of refutation and then applying you know, logical analysis to it. He does spend a lot of time really unpacking how phenomena exist as dependent or related events. Denjing Dawa Jungwa or Prachit Samapada. He does that a lot. And, he's, and he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop in the Vajra essence with the investigation of emptiness until he's covered everything. And that is yourself, he does it. Mind, of course. But all other phenomena as well. And so you, you, find, you come to the conclusion of great emptiness, that nothing in the entire universe exists by its own inherent nature. And then he moves on. Right? So it's no way overlooked. 
So, but again, the juxtaposition, how do you, okay, you can, you can do one, you can do another, but that doesn't necessarily elucidate how do they fit? How do, they, how do you understand the, the Gagyu approach, the Mahamudra approach, from the perspective of Galupa? And how can you understand the Galupa from the perspective of the Mahamudra? And I'm not sure that he does that so much. I think he lays them out kind of side by side. But then a couple of years back, about two, two and a half years ago, His Holiness, I sent an email to him with a, a query <clears throat> about translating some other material, Dzogchen material. And he said, instead of affirming, yeah, go for that, he said, well, why don't you... He suggested that I translate another text I never even heard of. And it turned out to be an anthology of essays, uh, about eight, maybe, something like that, by two formidable scholar adepts. They were both yogis, and they were also, as, as I saw for myself, really quite formidable scholars. They knew their stuff. They really knew their stuff well. Uh, by two scholars from the 19th, early 20th century, they were both close disciples of Lerap Lingba. And Lerap Lingba was a contemporary of Dujum Lingba. He died a couple of decades later, 1920-something, 20 26 or so. Um, incredible lama. I've referred to him in the past, and I strongly recommend a wonderful biography uh, of him called Fearless in Tibet. It's a marvelous book. So inspiring. Very well written by a Western scholar. He's done a first-rate job. It just kind of reads like a thriller. Very good scholarship, but very readable because you're not just translating some Tibetan text, which sometimes can be a little bit hard to penetrate. Lerap Lingba. So he was, again, a yogi's yogi, very accomplished Dzogchen meditator, accomplished adept, a siddha. He was clearly a siddha. There just can, really can't be any reasonable doubt about that. But it turned out he is also a very close ally, friend, and guru for the 13th Dalai Lama. And he spent, he devoted a great deal of time and effort to doing everything he could to working for the sake of the Tibetan people and to doing all he could to extend the longevity of the 13th Dalai Lama. It's a very close relationship. And the 13th Dalai Lama played enormous, had enormous regard for him as one, his Dzogchen guru. So it was a remarkable relationship. He passed away in 1926 or so. I can't remember the exact date. And then his, then when he, his tuku turned out to be two, at least two. And one was Kambojikme Pinso, who died just a few years ago. And there's a whole story there. I'm not going to go into it. But he came to be quite widely regarded as the greatest yogi living in Tibet during the closing decades of the 20th century. Formidable. He was the one that started this community from scratch in 1980 right in the area where Dujum Lingba had been teaching and where 13 of his disciples achieved rainbow body, a little region called Setar. He started teaching there in 1980 with probably no students. And, oh, 20 years later, there were 10,000. 30 years later, there were 40,000. All grown about around the seed that he sowed there. Formidable, incredible impact. And the community there is absolutely awesome. I've met, I've met one of the two principal abbots, and I've corresponded indirectly with the other one. Incredible what they're doing there. And then the other of his two tukus was somebody you may have heard of, at least I just, I think you've heard of him at least, called as Sogeramuji. Sogeramuji. So one had tremendous impact and great, tremendous service to, the, to Buddhism within Tibet, and the other one has performed tremendous service outside of Tibet, Sogeramuji, with his wonderful book, Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, and so on. 
uh, and brought so many superb teachers, world-class teachers, to his centers at Le Bling and other centers that he's created around the world. And so those are his two, his two principal tukus. And so I'd like to read a little bit. So the, this anthology of essays by two of the disciples of Le Blingba, right? These were both very well-versed in Galupa and Madhyamaka, Prasangaka, Tsongkhapa's writing, and they were steeped in the Dzogchen tradition by a great, great master, Leda Blingba. And they wrote a number of essays, just independently, I presume, on the interface between the Madhyamaka, Mahamudra, and Dzogchen. And then they they were compiled, put into one volume, and His Holiness suggested I translate it, which, of course, I didn't say, no, I'm too busy. (laughs) So, of course, I, I did. Of course, I did. And it's being polished now. Um, so I thought this could be a nice segue to kind of weave together from, from two individuals. And I have, I have excerpts from two essays, both of them. They're really quite impressive. So I'm going to read a little bit. We have just 10 minutes, but I'm going to read a little bit. I think you'll find this is worth your time. Okay. So the first one, his name is Lopsang Donga Chukigyatso Cho. Uh, simply his name, one of, the two, one of these two principal disciples of Letup Lingba, and he wrote an essay called, in English translation, Oral Instructions of the Wise, Questions and Answers Regarding the Views of Mahamudra, Mahasandhi, which is Sanskrit for Dzogchen, and Madhyamaka. So that could be interesting. Now, this is excerpt, because the, the essay goes on like 20, 30 pages. But here, I think, pertain exactly to what we've been looking into. And we're right now at that, that border, between the straight Mahamudra approach and then the Glupa approach, between Mahamudra and Madhyamaka. So here's what he says. When engaging in such Mahamudra meditation, shamat is achieved by focusing on the mind, such that one seeks the view on the basis of meditation. Isn't it nice to see the, the you know, kind of ring, ring bells? I've heard that before. I'm sure I've heard that. I can't remember where, but I'm sure I've heard something. You know. So we really see it's in the current there, right? We know exactly what he's talking about. That kind of gets, slips us into a comfort, a comfort zone. Independence upon this, this shamatha, the shamatha focus on the mind, which you've now had very clearly explicated. Independence upon this shamatha, the mind is settled with the aspect of correctly, is settled with the aspect of correctly determining the origin, location, and destination of the mind as being identityless, identityless, empty of inherent nature. So first you settle in the mind, and then you turn that mind in upon itself, doing the ontological probe to its origin, location, and destination, until you see the mind is empty of identity, empty of inherent nature, in terms of its origination, its location, and its moving on. So there's your vipassana. He just summed it up in one sentence. But he tells you the strategy is really, really clear. You achieve shamatha first, and then you make quick work of this. You don't just agonize over it for decades. With the reinforcement of vipassana, so you gain that insight and then you empower it with your vipassana and you reinforce, you probe, you probe. You just get, it's like being in a, in a lucid dream and getting more and more and more lucid. You can get lucid and still not be able to walk through walls, right? Understand it more deeply, more thoroughly, more incisively. So this is how you fortify the clarity, lucidity of a dream and this is how you fortify your vipassana. With the reinforcement of vipassana, there are two stages in general. So now that, okay, we are. Specifically in the tradition of Marpa, Milarepa, and Gampopa, 
There is the method of identifying the essential nature of the mind independence upon chandali. The essential nature of the mind, now we're talking about its ultimate nature, not just its relative nature. Primordial mind of clear light, independence upon chandali, upon tumo. Okay? There, classic. So that is called, that is called the Mahamudra. That realization of the essential nature, the primordial, the unborn nature of the mind, combining the methods of Mahamudra and Tumo, that's called the Mahamudra. In the Geluk, in the Geluk tradition, Penchen Losan Chuki Gansen wrote a root text and auto commentary on the unique form of Mahamudra according to the oral lineage of the Mahasiddha Dharmavajra and his spiritual son, who is Sangyeshe. And Sangyeshe was a root guru of Penchen Rinpoche. So he's, of course, alluding to the text, the root text and commentary we're studying right now. Right? So we have these two approaches. Okay? So there was just a nice overview. Let's go a little bit more. The other, that was a very brief excerpt from a very long and detailed essay. It'll get published. Wisdom has agreed to publish it, so it'll come out. Even if I die, somebody's going to publish it. Get it'll be fine. So then the other author of, this, uh, of, of the essays within this anthology is Jetsutum Zambo. Jetsutum Zambo. Again, a disciple of Lera Pingba. And he, one of his essays is called An Ornament of the Enlightened View of Samatabhadra, Secret Guidance Nakedly Granted to Dispel All Misconceptions Regarding the View of the Clear Light Great Perfection. So, he's going to write from a perspective very well informed, by Gilupa, by Majamaka, but now he's going to write from that perspective to dispel misconceptions. There are a lot of misconceptions among Gilupas about Dzogchen. They haven't studied it, they don't understand it, and therefore they very easily dismiss it. Well, he's going to help them. Maybe that's why His Holiness suggested I translate this. I don't think the Tibetan has been very widely read. I think it was a print of maybe 500 texts. Maybe it'll be, I wouldn't be surprised if it's read more widely in English than it was in Tibetan. So here it is, so again, an excerpt, an excerpt. The practice of differentiating, the practice, and we'll get to this, the practice of differentiating is called guidance to the ultimate reality of the mind, ultimate reality of the mind, chitata, which is self-emergent primordial consciousness. Okay, differentiating this. This is the pointing out instructions. And Dujum Lingba does this with incredible majesty and, and precision. I mentioned it before, so I'll be very brief now. Here's mind. Here's primordial consciousness. Here's substrate consciousness. Here's Dhanakaya. And just, here's conditioned consciousness. Here's primordial consciousness. Differentiating. So you recognize the one you're familiar with, which you can identify and you can understand within the context of a conceptual framework. Does it exist? Yes. Is it born? Yes. And so forth. The intellect says, I'm feeling comfortable here. I've got it. I understand it. I understand it. And they said, okay, now, apart from that, here is Rigpa. Here is primordial consciousness. Here is Dharmakaya. And you have to leave your intellect at the door. It's not to say it's going to insult your intellect. It just transcends your intellect. And once you've set your intellect behind and you're looking at the, at the moon at which the, the pointing instruction is pointing, What's left over when you've set aside your intellect and all the constructs of the intellect? What's left over? What's still there? And that's pointing out Rigpa. It's in a way by process of elimination. Right? And so that's this differentiation and 
just as I said to Jumlingba, in a multiple text, most elaborately in the Bhajra essence, does it with, I just have to say, breathtaking clarity. So to proceed in the extraordinary practice of such differentiation of samsara and nirvana, you must purify the negative habitual propensities of your ordinary body, speech, and mind, and then purify your body, speech, and mind by practicing the method of transforming them into the pure vajras of the body, speech, and mind of the jinas. So he's suggesting to really prepare yourself to get full, to derive the full advantage, full benefits of the pointing out instructions, the differentiation between, let's say, conditioned mind and unconditioned pristine awareness. It's going to serve you very well if prior to that you've done at least some state regeneration practice, dissolving, that is, first of all, seeing the emptiness of inherent nature of your own body, speech, and mind, seeing that, really deconstructing that, and then out of that deconstruction, out of this non-duality of dharmadhatu and dharmakaya, then arising in the pure mode, with pure vision of your own body, speech, and mind, and having that as your platform. So not just the platform of shamatha, but the platform of pure vision and divine pride. Viewing, engaging in this investigation from the perspective of this stage of generation. That will serve you very well. And Dujum Lima himself did it. He himself did it. He says so. At the beginning of the Vajra Essence, he said, and after I've been practicing state regeneration a little bit. And then he had a direct breakthrough, became a Vididhara, direct realization of Rigpa. But he said, oh, I, I, I did a little bit. Okay. So he says, that must come first. You must purify the negative habitual propensities of your ordinary body, speech, and mind, with which we have bound up in dualistic grasping, cognitive diffusion, reification. You must purify that. Then purify your body, speech, and mind by practicing the method of transforming them into the three pure vajras of the body, speech, and mind of the jinas. That must come first by such outward and inward differentiation. Outward, difference between samsara and nirvana, for example. Inward, well, obvious. By such outward and inward, inward differentiation, you engage in the discipline of pristine awareness. In the phase of practice of purifying your body, speech, and mind, the vigorous practices of the body, speech, and mind are strenuous practices. Not easy. Anybody who's done some state regeneration, it's not easy. Visualization, all of that, not easy. Therefore, without the practice of releasing all effort, so those are strenuous, effortful, state regeneration, state of completion, effortful, no question. But then you come to Dzogchen. Therefore, without the practice of releasing all effort and settling your body, speech, and mind in the natural states, the practice of the effortless path will be difficult. So, so he's not saying it's impossible, but if you've not done any of the purification of stage regeneration practice, and you just leap directly from your ordinary sense of body, speech, and mind, probably f- f- filtered with dualistic grasping and so forth, if that's your platform, it can be difficult. Just go directly from that right to pristine awareness. It doesn't say, difficult. It doesn't say impossible. It's difficult. So in order to pacify all the karmic energies and conceptual fabrications, you must apply yourself to the practice of settling your physical, verbal, and mental behavior in their natural states. You know what that is? If you do that for a very long time, that is an effective method for achieving stillness. But when appearances arise as illusions, that may prevent you from cutting off thoughts of reification. And that is, he's speaking of the, the pros and cons of shamatha. 
and that is so incredibly helpful, you know, cutting out so much conceptual elaboration, the noise, you know it very well, and you come to that stillness, which is like the sublime state, the ambrosial dwelling, uh, bliss like the warmth of a fire, clarity like the breaking of dawn, uh, non-conceptuality like an, an ocean unmoved by waves. Like, boy, do you not want to move, you know. But if you stay there, sooner or later you have to pee. <laughs> That's just the way it is, you know. You have to pee. You can be Milarepa. I think Milarepa peed, you know. doesn't matter who you are. You have some biological function, they will not be ignored. And you got to pee, you got to pee. And that means you have to come off the cushion. Do not stay in your cushion. It gets all wet, mushy, smelly. <laughs> really bad idea, you know, really bad. So get off your cushion. Don't foul your nest. But when you do, then appearances arise again. And they're arising as if they're inherently existent. All the appearances arise. If your cave, your meditation hut, your body, and so forth, they all arise and they're all shouting at you, I am inherently existent, I exist from my own side. And if all you've gotten to is shamatha, that doesn't give you much in the way of seeing through the lie, the misleading nature of appearances themselves. You'll just have a vivid, stable awareness of delusive appearances. Wow. I'm a marmot with shamatha. Cool. And you're making no headway at all, not one hair's breadth on the path, if you're not challenging reification. So that may prevent you from cutting off thoughts of reification, because you don't know how. What do you do? Just stop thinking? But as soon as you start thinking, thoughts of reification will come right back in, because you've not challenged them. You've not practiced vipassana. You've not even gotten the bull by the horns. You've not even grappled with the real issue. You've calmed the mind. That's it. But they were doing that before the Buddha ever came along. They were really good at it, right? So you must strive again. You must again strive in various activities of the body, speech, and mind as you did before and try to cause appearances to arise as illusions. This means vipassana. You've got to see through the appearances. You have to probe into the the way things exist and not simply observe their phenomenological nature, right? How they appear. Thus settling your body, speech, and mind in in their... Natural states is a superb method for developing stillness of the mind and applying yourself to the practice of letting of letting be is essential for developing the wisdom of realizing the emptiness of true existence. For a disciple who is imbued with such stillness of the mind, not being disturbed by compulsive thoughts, and with the special wisdom of ascertaining the absence of true existence of whatever whatever it appears, for such a disciple, it is easy for the guru to point out the dharmakaya, the primordial consciousness that is present in the ground of being. That was strategy, right? Crystal clear. When sustaining the recognition of pristine awareness, that too is easy. If you've achieved shamatha, and you've made deep insights in vipassana, and you have pointing out instructions, they're not difficult. If you haven't, oh, difficult to the point of impossible. There are many such reasons for being imbued with those qualities. So the uncommon preliminary practices are also very important. That's where they came in. The Bajrasattva practice, Guru Yoga, prostrations, Bodhicitta, and so forth. And that's all for now. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> That's enough. I give you a full meal. She, she, she takes it, you take you at least 24 hours to digest. But there's more. <laughs> so enjoy. Enjoy. Yeah. Such a privilege. 
but His Holiness suggested I do that. It was uh, very difficult to translate and very enriching to do so. Very good. All right, continue practicing.